This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained, and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Soyuz Bay, Dunedin, and I am joined from Fakatani by Mawera Karatai. Kia ora, Mawera. Kia ora, Sam. How goes it with you today? Uh, better than yesterday, but not much better than yesterday. <laughs> oh, well, that's not really good <laughs> at all. What there can are... happen to make it better? Uh, there are two big holes in my leg which weren't there yesterday morning, but they will recover. And who are we introducing today? Today it is my great pleasure to introduce Leslie Imink, who is one of our uh, first term councillors on Whakatani District Council, the first of many terms, I imagine. Um, and uh, also um, the owner of a business called Tourism business advice or TBA but um, Leslie's, Leslie's more than that she's been working in the tourism industry um, in New Zealand for a really really long time and um, has been um, hugely involved in growing the Bay of Plenty as a tourism destination um, but as, and aside from that is um, busy in the community and a really good person and it's just nice to have you here today thank you Leslie. Oh, tēnā kōrā, and thank you very much, Madam Trump, for a lovely introduction. Kia ora, Sam. <laughs> Kia ora, Leslie. How has your bubble life been? Uh, I think my bubble life's been really great. Um, being a self-employed sort of person with my tourism consultancy, I do a lot of working from home at my desk, you know, and then I move out and travel around the country as I, uh, I work with a lot of Māori tourism operators and do regional strategies and community action plans, those sorts of things. So a lot of that can still be done um, from the home base and the home office. Um, and then to complement that, I um, have a lot of council meetings. So from a bubble point of view, it was actually easy to work from home, easy to be at home. I'm a self-starter, and so I didn't really find any challenge with that. You talked about getting out around the country. Have you managed to get out since the lockdown? No, I've been to Tauranga a couple of times in Rotorua. <laughs> That's been as long as the distance bubble has been. Um, but of course, via you know, communications and Zoom, like a lot of other people, we've been seeing a lot of people's homes, bedrooms, offices, <laughs> and all sorts of uh, you know flashed views when you're trying to get all, all ritzy on it. <laughs> did you do the council meetings remotely? Yes, we did. So uh, pretty much from, I think, must have been like the, the last week of March, um, we were having council Zoom meetings probably more regularly than we would have had because there was a whole lot of COVID um, community initiatives and actions that we need to do. And as far as the tourism stuff, that, that pretty much just dried up overnight, actually. The tourism itself did, but I imagine the rethinking about what tourism means has increased. Well, I have to say it was a bit of a joke, this whole reimagined tourism. You know, like they are generally the most proactive, reactive, flexible, um, you know, changing your way of thinking. Because by the nature of the industry, you, you have to react all the time to floods, famines, earthquakes, um, all sorts of different events, particularly if you're like an inbound tour operator and you're working as a supply in the outdoors, you're constantly having to reassess and rethink. So when, of course, when the um, international was to stop coming to New Zealand and they were talking about how to reimagine tourism, um, we were kind of a little bit amused but also really insulted 
it just it put some context around that New Zealand's um, tourism sort of breakdown is 60% domestic and 40% international. So, and that depends on what sort of communities you're in. Obviously, you know, for Auckland, Rotorua and Otago, like Queenstown, that's more 80% international and 20% domestic. And even though, you know, the government is saying $9 billion of Kiwis not being able to travel overseas could be spent in New Zealand, that's just not an actual reality. And um, we're going to see a whole lot of fallout coming through with this summer with no international visitors here. And, and they've, they've certainly struggled. And while some operators who do have a high domestic base are um, able to pivot, that's that other new word, reimagine and pivot, uh, you can't uh, whistle up four million international visitors out of who we've got in New Zealand. We got told off for calling it pivot at once. We got told what we were told to oh, call yeah. it. Oh, pirouette. We were told to call it pirouette. pirouetting. Oh, yeah. Oh, pirouette. <laughs> yeah. It almost makes you want to think of pirouette with that, those fingers, doesn't it? <laughs> when someone thinks that. <laughs> But the, the, the council, um, there were quite a few comments actually on social media um, about how easy it must be for council because you must have nothing to do. Well, I couldn't have been further from the truth because there was all sorts of um, community safety issue things that had to be addressed and there was just, you know, numerous meetings and particularly in lockdown four, level four, uh, you just, you couldn't even get out even though you... Some were classes of central services, but the majority weren't. And all of the things like annual plan reviews and all that sort of thing is on a pretty fixed cycle. So it, it's not like there's yeah, nothing to do, because even if you're not doing it, then you have to figure out how to reschedule it. And, and that's right. And like we're kind of in the position now of uh, the annual report coming in, up and the um, audit New Zealand has to come in and do all this sort of stuff. Well, just for example, audit New Zealand. By this time this year, this time this year, you would normally have probably about sixty percent of all your councils audited. Well, they're sitting at about ten percent. So everything is having a COVID pushback, and that implicates the annual plans and the long-term plans. Um, but I think for Fakatani District Council, you know, they've been through more more incidences and events you know, than the average council. So they're, they're pretty resilient and we've got some pretty good systems and processes in place to help us. And there's no perfect system, of course. Do you think that the pandemic will cause any rethinking of those long-term plans? Has it perhaps brought any initiatives to the fore that might not have been done otherwise? Mm. Not, not quite at the moment um, because we're still in, we, you know, we received quite a bit of provincial growth funding for some new initiatives in the district. So those projects are kind of sitting there at the moment and we receive more funding than expected from government because they want to fast track some of those projects. And a couple of those projects like the Boat Harbour and the Town Revitalisation, you know, they were kind of on the long-term plan, you know, from the last 10 or 20 years and it was government that said, we want you to have a think now about things that you've never been able to afford, but you would like to do sooner if we help you with some, you know, koha. And that's probably where these two big PGF growth funds applications and their funding came. Did you come up with any shovel-ready things? Oh, look, there was numerous shovel-ready things, and we'd have to say the government's been really generous uh, to the Whakatane district, particularly post, um, you know, Fakari, and losing a huge... Um, part of the season and still not operational. Um, so not only do we, we get a lot of provincial growth funding, we got a lot of accelerator funding to help progress those and then a whole lot of sort of roading projects, um, all sorts of weed, all sorts of extra little bits of funding that are just been able to, instead of having them come through over the quiet over the next three years, have been able to do within this, this nine months which has mean we've been able to employ more people, which was the purpose of, um, you know, all the shovel-ready projects. One of the criticisms of shovel-ready is that it's a bit of a 1950s, 1960s model, and, and particularly it, it's a bit of a blokes thing, you know, job, jobs for blokes-ready projects. 
Have you managed to, or have you heard of any projects that are have, have perhaps more community focused that have been able to be developed under that? Well, probably the main one has been this Kia Kaha sort of Fakatani program, which is where they are doing a lot of the roadside tidy ups and um, weeding and biodiversity and. Um, those sorts of things. But I'd have to say, when you go out to our community and you see the teams, they're not all blokes. <laughs> they're definitely not blokes. And our road crew, I'd have to say, are probably now majority female. And uh, you don't want to mess with some of that, those young ladies. They, they know how to <laughs> run a good road crew. <laughs> but in, term, in terms of a more female-centric um, activity, not that I can recall off the top of my head. It, what, what's being stood up to help tourism? Well, so even though um, the Whakatane district, only 20% of our international visitors are tourism. So we've got a 80% domestic. So it's really, so we're a great holiday destination because of the beach and the bush. But White Island Tours, for example, um, you know, who were doing their, their trips, they were the opposite. So 80% of their business is tied up with international visitors and only 20% domestic. So that's had a huge impact on them. And it's not just, um, you know, White Island tours. It also has an impact on the kayaking companies, on the fishing charter companies, um, you know, the bushwalking companies. Because a lot of Kiwis, when they travel around New Zealand, if it's on a family holiday or a special weekend away, they're normally only going to go to a place once. So, you know, even though we've definitely, in, um, through the last couple of months, seen more domestic visitors through Fakatani, it's actually more organic rather than intent intention, even though we're putting in more advertising um, dollars and spend to attract people, we were already getting 80% of domestic visitors coming. So in terms of economic impact, surprisingly, Fakatani District is tracking higher this year at the same time, all through every month through winter, tracking higher now than they were at the same period last year. And we're actually in the top five performing districts across the country for visitor spend. Our retailers, because they never had a very busy summer, are now feeling the pinch because they don't have that fat that was able to see them through the winter like they normally would have. You're talking about people going to Fakatani. They also go there for the sunshine. So let's have Katrina and the waves walking on sunshine. Why this one? <laughs> um, well, back in the um, oh my god, in the nineties, I um, I don't mind a bit of an adventure. So we did skydiving over um, in Brisbane. We lived over there for a couple of years, and that was the pump out song that when you were getting ready to put your shoot on, that they were doing in the in the hangar, <laughs> and I guess. You know, when you have a big buzz like that, it kind of resonates. And I've just always thought it was resonating.
Do we think tourism is going to have the big Kiwi summer that everyone's talking about? Well, I'm, I'm hoping so, but there's still going to be a lot of operators and some destinations that, that will suffer. I mean, you think about what happened just when um, Auckland uh, went back into lockdown again, and you know how we make little jokes sometimes about south of the Bombays or Jaffas and things like that. Um, honestly, when they stayed in lockdown, after having like a brilliant sort of July school holidays, everything just shut up shop. So what happens in our biggest city in the country does have a big impact. And of course, we need the, the volume of the visitors coming out from Auckland out to the regions, especially places like our, you know, ourselves in Gisborne, you know, down in Taranaki. Um, so we're not going to have a bumper summer because we're not going to have international visitors. But I think we're probably going to be able to trade through better than we were forecasting six months ago. Is it a matter of different products for a local market or different different packaging? Uh, look, look very much so. Like you know, you've got your luxury people who want to do the wineries, and you know, the, and of course, um, cycling now is like the new golf. You know, especially because you can do it with families. So we've got some really good um, uh, lower value, mid value, and then high luxury sort of products right across between some of those outdoor activities, and and. And for me, I mean, I was hoping I was going to get a mountain bike last Christmas, but I didn't. Uh, you know, I've been saying for a couple of years now, you know, we need to start doing some of these trails. Um, and, of course, um, ourselves and a couple of other groups of friends have done some of the, the guided walk, you know, like Norfolk Track, Rootburn, and Abel Tasman. So I think this is the sort of level of activity that we're going to see people who might not have been able to afford it before um, going out and giving a tongue. And early early indications, particularly for the guided walks and the cycle trails, is that people already booked. You know, so if you haven't booked, you've probably missed out. But then you'll have, um, you know, destinations like perhaps um, Gisborne and where they don't have a lot, a lot of what they call a commissionable product. So that's where it's like White Island Tours, whether you book through the eyesight or you book through your motel or you book through a sort of a wholesaler, you know, there was a bit of a clip on the ticket that helps you know, gather that commission. Um, Whakatane, really, aside from White Island Tours, doesn't have many products like that, and Gisborne is probably even less going around the coast. And because we have so much free outdoor product in New Zealand, that's probably where a lot of these small business operators are going to really feel, feel the pinch. And the other real sort of challenge with that is Kiwis traditionally don't really pay to experience Māori tourism products. Because we already live with it in our country, it's not something you would go and pay $300 to have, you know, a one-day guided walk with someone. Whereas if you're going up the Whitunaki Forest and you're an international visitor, having a guide with a talk and a lunch, you would be happy to pay for that. So that's where there's going to be the sort of disconnect this summer and where the small business operators, particularly Māori tourism operators, might struggle. It's going to be interesting to see what the impact is on the Docker state. You know, when you think about what you're saying before about how, as Kiwis, we tend to want to have the free experiences. Well, that tends to be our Docker state, and that was already under so much pressure. So, yeah, I'm I'm curious to see what will happen now to that and. Maybe we need to start um, getting government to look at putting some more money in there or, yeah, but it's it's going to be a tricky one, especially around here. Yeah, see, like um, that international visitor levy they got introduced when international visitors came into the country a couple of years ago, overnight, I might add. Government seems to be very good at doing something overnight if they want to. Um, so the tourism industry kicked up a lot of fuss about that, but we we're kicking up the fuss because we were expecting that money from international visit to be hypothecated or allocated to the DOC estate because the DOC, DOC's lost millions and millions of dollars over the last you know nine years, and so they're on catch-up mode all the time. So we have always been supportive of DOC receiving more funds. Um, it's a crown enterprise, you know, so it's it's not meant to make profit. <laughs> It's just, it's just to be a bit more cost neutral. But I guess if there's a silver lining in COVID for New Zealand, and I'm not just saying it for tourism, but it's made us press pause and to have a bit of a, a second think about how we manage it going forward. 
Because once the borders open again, even though we're probably going to be a bit more restrictive about the numbers coming into the country because we want it to be a high value destination, there there is still going to be huge demand um, for experiencing our great outdoors, even more now because of our COVID reputation internationally. Do you think we might see a move to to slow tourism? Yeah, look, look, that conscious travel and slow tourism, well-being, holistic travel. Now they've been talking about that for twenty years, uh, but it's never really quite come about. And neither has like green tourism or sustainable tourism. But um, I think as more indigenous cultures around the world, uh, they're starting to be proved right. The way that they engaged, you know, um, with the environment and their natural gardens and kaitiaki of the environment. You talk about all the health benefits and, and how they use the environment and only take what they need to and they leave it for to repair and restore. There is this huge growing trend now, and I've noticed that in like the, the last decade, that all of a sudden this conscious and slow tourism, sustainable, and um, people will be paying to come to do a thousand dollars worth of three days working on a dock track, you know, or looking at the biodiversity or doing weed trimming. I think that is probably going to be one of the new trends that will come out, and it will probably happen quite quickly, I'd imagine, if we market it cleverly is how to come come and, and enhance and um, slow, slow it down and really enjoy everything we have. And, and they'll wrap it around with a whole lot of wellbeing and health benefits as well. And we already kind of have that reputation organically, but now I think there's an opportunity for us to actually uh, not over-promote it, but promote it um, in a meaningful way so we get the right sort of visitors coming to experience it. Biggest risk, though, is actually our, our carbon emission impact on flights having to get here to New Zealand, because ninety-eight percent of our visitors arrive by air, only two percent arrive by cruise. So that is actually going to be uh, perhaps a challenge for us, which is why we need to continue to develop being a high-value high destination. But also providing opportunities for people to offset that in some form not just by paying money but maybe that's one of those answers you're talking about that you know people don't necessarily just want to for, for maori tourism they don't necessarily just want to go for a walk in the forest but maybe they want to go and work for a day planting trees mm. yeah and, and that's already been happening actually and um you know the the smart operators will already be planning and thinking about how they're going to promote that internationally um while they're in this this quiet period. Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orokanui, Dunedin's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou, nā mahi aroha nui, kia koutou ko tāwaho. We hope you're all having the best day, beautiful superstars in your beloved universes. And I really hope that wherever you are and whatever is happening around you, this journey that we're all on together proving to be very rewarding, very sustaining and illuminating for you each day. More and more who you are, a triumph of natures are perfect, unique, here, making things better. Thank you. So as we know, we've been through this very interesting several months together, riding all the ups and downs and experiencing so many new ways of being and doing and feeling and seeing. And now here we are back in the glorious freedom of level one. And for many around the world, this is not the case. So every day, I just feel so grateful to everyone and so lucky. So thank you all for your hard work in making this happen. And over the time of lockdown, I know for all of us, different things occurred to us. And for me, I really enjoyed the opportunity to connect more with my war mansion and Yesterday I had the very exciting experience of finally having the time and the psychic space and energy to transform what had previously really been a storage room into a room for reflection. And there's also multiple musical instruments in there. So it can be a room for musical reflection. And the cats had cleverly redecorated the room as a storage room, when it was a storage room, by 
digging up lots of the pot plants in the room and arranging dirt and piles around the room, which was very kind of them. And so this dirt was returned to the earth outside where I'm making a new garden. The hens have kindly cleared the way for me. And I just feel as though the house now can can breathe, that there's this space and this beauty this light air that's come into the house from clearing this room and of course we can look at this in many different ways in our lives if there's aspects of our lives where there's a a block or there's things being stored in a way that means we can't move forward or we can't access that aspect of ourselves it's really great when you do have the time and the psychic space and the energy to reorganize that aspect of your life and return parts of of that that you've been holding on to to the earth letting things go so that you can make way for the new and make all aspects beautiful and free and full of light and space and air and now that I have this room for reflection it's wonderful I can have all the doors in the house open you know and there's no part of the house that's, that's shut away or hidden it's very very nice So I hope that for all of you, you're finding ways to make your daily life more supportive for you. That might be through reorganising your beautiful daily environment or that might be practising ways of being and your interactions with others or with yourself that are more supportive. But in whatever way you're doing it, I really hope that your home within and your home around you is really beautiful and really rewarding for you, really inspiring for you and reflects back to you the triumph of nature's art that you are. And I look forward to talking to you tomorrow. Thanks so much. Kakite. You're listening to Blowing Bubbles. We're talking with Leslie Immink. I think one of the other opportunities that are going to present itself, particularly with Māori tourism operators, is um, how we can actually engage more with Kiwis, not just to come in and do their products, uh, like when I was consulting, and you know, I would be brought in to have a um, test a new feasi- an idea and develop a bit of a feasibility and give some actions for it. One of the things I used to kind of share is because every operator you speak to says they're authentic Māori. <laughs> and you say, well, of course you're all authentic because you're Māori, you know. But one of the things, if you want to make money um, and um, you know, monetize your product so you can earn profit for your family, it's better to have an experience. So whether it's a kayaking on the river product or whether it's uh, walking in the bush product or whether you're um, doing hunting, you have to actually have a successful tourism product or experience first and then you flavour and thread through all the tikanga and the Māori um, appreciation for it because then that will... A, a hunter or a kayaker person are going for hunting and kayaking first but what they might do is choose a Māori kayaking operation because they're going to get all the stories of the water or the river and then they're also going to get what the actual experience is. So one of the first things I used to say to people is don't worry about being too Māori, I mean that sensitively first, concentrate on what your activity, your experiences, and then thread as much as you can because then you have a point of difference from a non-Māori kayak operator on the river or in the harbour or on the sea. So between trying to have a rethink about that, and I love it now that New Zealand history is going to be taught in schools, because this is a perfect um, segue into helping everyday Kiwis, new new migrants as well as old Kiwis and you know their families, start to learn more about our incredible history. And by virtue of that, it might help Kiwis appreciate more going to experience some of the um, these tourism products that Māori are offering with a, with a different lens. Yeah. And it might put tourism products in places where you didn't expect them to be. Oh, ab- absolutely, yeah. What's the... I've had several discussions with my colleague Phil Osborne um, about... He's a marketing lecturer. Um about the notion of authentic and people are very much looking for an authentic experience now and I've said you know as opposed to Disneyland and he, he laughs because now Disneyland is authentic in its own right it's authentic Disneyland <laughs> but you're talking about having that experience and it being a real experience 
Is that where we're going? No, I, I would be hard to argue that any experience isn't real, <laughs> but it all comes down to its value proposition. If you were just advertising uh, kayaking on the river as a kayak trip um, and you'll feel great, you know, that's good. That's very different from the value proposition of be, be guided by mana whenua and hosted with a um, Māori cuisine lunch and hear the stories and legends of how the rivers and the place names got integrated into what you're going to see and experience. Now that's very different from come from a great river kayak trip with fantastic funny guides. And so it's the value proposition that you need to weave through and it always comes down to a benefit or what's in it for me. So one is a kayak trip on the river which is beautiful, it's used to Whakatai River for example, and that you, you're going to feel great and energised, it's a nice experience, versus the benefit of hearing all the culture and the history and that reappreciation for what we already have here or admiration for what we have here. That's a very different value proposition when you're paying good dollars over to do an experience. And I think probably from a marketing point of view, too often we're trying to market the product and the experience rather the value and the personal benefit that you were going to experience from it. So um, a year or so ago um, I was in town visiting my friends who own uh, an accommodation venue and I saw my friend and I gave her a big hug and this Canadian woman who was staying at that place said, oh, that looks amazing, I could do with one of those. And I said, come here then, I gave her a big hug as I do, you know. And um, I got talking to her and her and her friend had travelled the length of New Zealand. Whakatani was their last place and they were about to go home to Canada. And uh, we got talking and she said, you know, if you could pick one place to go, where would it be? And I said, oh, out to Hikatai Domain to see we've got a two and a half thousand year old Pūrere tree. It's the, you'll never see another one like it in the world. And told her about Pūrere moths and we had this amazing conversation. And I said to her, how about we come and pick you up tomorrow morning and take you out there for a drive? And she said, would you do that? I said, of course I would. So the next morning, picked her and her friend up, drove out there, had ice cream at the beach, got a pie, had this amazing time, and connected with them on Facebook. And I just got a message from her the other day to say that of the whole of her New Zealand experience, mm. that was the thing she always remembers that day. We had oh. this cool day. It was it was real, it was sharing, and um, and we have to remember that. Those are creating real memories. Hmm. Good, good on you, Māori. Thank you for your service to the country. <laughs> <laughs> you know how I roll, Leslie. <laughs> Hugs for everyone. <laughs> Let's take something which is of a much further tourist trip. Let's have Sinatra fly me to the moon. Yes. Why this one? Oh, look, I've always been thinking about the future. And I worked out when I was about 30 that I would never be able to afford to do space travel if I didn't start saving. And it would cost about $300,000 in the year 2020. Now, the price is getting closer to reality and the space travel, uh, but my budget isn't. So now I've... I've been passing it on to my children for one of them to get out into the stratosphere one day and blow me a kiss back and plus Frank Sinatra is pretty cool. Fly me to the moon Let me play among the stars Let me see what spring is like on Jupiter and Mars In other words Hold my hand In other words Baby, kiss me Fill my heart with song And let me sing forevermore You are all I long for All I worship and adore in other words, please be true. In other words, I love you. 
song Let me sing forevermore You are all I long for All I worship and adore In other words I don't think we do enough of that kind of thing, creating real-life experiences with real-life people. And, and there are some amazing people in our community who would love the opportunity to just go and, you know, make themselves available and, and take people and, and let people have that opportunity to see the world through their eyes. It's really satisfying. Well, it raises an interesting point because particularly with Māori operators, um, their co-papa is not to sell their sweet kumara, you know, not not to sell themselves. So it is really difficult at times for them to place value on taking someone out to to get crayfish. And this is one of the you know the things when I was going out talking to people, they're very shy about what the experience is just by being with someone that's local. And it doesn't you don't even have to do the whole mana fenomen, just someone who is local knows the best fishing spots or the diving spots or, you know, or my great great grandfather, you know, he ran up that mountain and, you know, he named it, you know. We've we're very understated. We from a patriot patriotism point of view, we're not like a lot of the rest of the world where we sing our self praise. So that's another reason why our visitors love us because we don't do that. We just let the experience speak for itself without upping it. So that's my part of our charm is what I hear people say. And perhaps a difference in what we need to be thinking about how we can achieve is while some of us, Moira, will do that for an international people, perhaps we're not brave enough to, to, to turn up in Fokotani and say, I'm from Dunedin, can I just come and hang out at your house for the day? Let's can we go to the beach? <laughs> How could we package that as an experience? That would be that would be the way to do because everybody likes you know that's 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 a whole different experience, isn't it, than than visiting as a tourist? Well, the tricky thing with that is that most people say, yeah, that's good, but as soon as you try to get them to pay for it, everything gets valued differently, and also the level of expectation changes is when you pay for something. So like we have a, a lot of marae in New Zealand that want to you know host visitors onto the marae and they want them to have overnight, they want to give them the hangi and a bit of a concert in the evening. And that all sounds really lovely. And if you are doing that for a visiting school group um, versus a, a group of international visitors who are paying $300 a night, whereas the school group paid $30 a night, Probably going to get the same experience. The level of expectation will be quite different by the you know the higher paying passenger or the guest. For example, they like the idea of having one night marae stay, but the reality of having 40 or 50 people sleeping in one room, which first of all is foreign to, um, because they, everyone likes their own spaces, and then you get the snorers and the farters and the burpers, and you get people walking or falling over at night trying to go outside to the bathroom, which is another thing. It's the whole thing changes when you actually have to pay for it. If you're experiencing it as um, a guess, an unpaying guess, your perception and your expectation differs quite greatly. But Kikis are pretty, international visitors just cannot believe it. Like, if I was walking the dog down to the heads and we saw some visitors here and they, they look quite nice and you know, you tell them the question, the, how the has got it name and they're chitty-chatting, you see they're in a camper van or something. Well, we wouldn't think twice about inviting them home. We want to come home for a drink, we're going to come home for a dinner. They're suspicious after the time. Oh, no, I couldn't do yes, yes, you can. You, I'll just live over there, you can come. And that's not unique to us. That's unique to a lot of New Zealand. <laughs> I always make a point of stopping. If people are standing looking looking at a map looking confused, I always make a point of, yes. of helping them. And more often than not, it doesn't. it's not far out of your way. Just say, I'll just walk you there. And people can't believe it. And they love it. Yeah, yeah they love it. <laughs> We've seen lots of societal changes over the last few months. 
what do you think is going to stick and what do you hope will stick? Hmm. I hope that um, the pause gives us time to rethink our commitment to the environment. And I'm not just talking about tourism, I'm also talking about council and other governance structures around the country. Um, so we have to start thinking a little bit smarter about having that um, climate change lens or how to restore our nature balance. And, you know, there's still really nothing broken. New Zealand, you know, when you compare us globally, is really a fantastic proposition in the way that we interact and experience with the environment. But we can still be doing better and we shouldn't be comparing ourselves to other international benchmarks. It's like, what do we expect from ourselves? And I really hope that now that we have been having a rethink about it, and even the, all the local and national government um, mandates coming down is talking about the four well-beings. I really hope that those aren't words. And I would really like to see us stick, and particularly Whakatane District, I know that we're certainly going to be having that, um, that climate change lens across all of our decision-making going forward. The tricky part about that is that often you can't be, you can't be green unless you're in the black. So it's a bit of a financial juggle. But if we are smart about it, it means that we might be saving more money long term by investing in our green technology, our green tech, and the way that we make our decisions short term. So some questions to end the show with, and not very much time, so we're going to have to be quick. What is mm -hmm. the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years? Mm, I think it's actually probably been um, working back here in the Whakatane district, even though I grew up in the district, I was working in Wellington um, uh, and some other different roles, and coming back and probably being more politically aware. So sometimes you can create change on the fringes, um, but I've now, after working closely with central government, I can see now that local government can probably have more impact on your community's well-being um, and better, out for, better outcomes for everyone. So we're writing a book of these conversations. It's called Tomorrow's Heroes. It's our team of people doing good work. So you are in the team. What is the superpower that's got you into our mansion? Ooh, um, I would say I'm a transformer. Sometimes people uh, think they know who I am and then I might surprise them. I don't know that the Transformers were superheroes. They were machines. Ooh, you'd be surprised what they can do. <laughs> <laughs> do you consider yourself to be an activist? Um, I would be an activist definitely for fresh water. And I think we need to really get back to reviewing Treaty or Waitangi and see how we need to be better partners with all of that. So what motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Mm, young people, definitely. I'm worried about the world that they're going to inherit, and I think we need to demonstrate and role model way better than we have been doing uh, because they're going to have to make a lot tougher decisions than we are. So we need to be preparing um, and looking at legacy and succession planning all the way, right across the spectrum. And what's the biggest challenge you're looking forward to in the next year or so? Hmm. Well, the biggest single challenge is the bureaucracy within local government. <laughs> <laughs> so if we're going to look at the, that challenge, it would be we have to stop saying we can't because, and it's a, we can and this is why. So we can't let legacy policy stop us from moving forward. Yep. We've had a pretty good demonstration over the last few months that we can do stuff. Yes, oh no, absolutely. I, to I totally agree. And I think most people have been probably quite surprised about how well we've transitioned out of it all. And lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners? Yeah, I think I would say um, just because someone is older than you or they've been in a role that's higher than you, you don't assume that they're always going to be right. You know, I was suspended from Kawato College as a fourth former. Um, because I was standing up and defending someone. And I learned two, two things that day. One is when you stick your neck out, it's probably going to be it's by itself. And two, 
because someone is older and supposedly in a position of authority doesn't mean they right that they are right. So to be true to yourself, and there's no wrong decisions if the intention of your decision is right. Thank you for that, Mawera. Um, Leslie, thanks for the commitment that you've made to our community and for the work that you're doing in our freshwater space uh, and for just being a, a bloody good role model for um, other people in our community to have the courage of their convictions as well. You give up a lot to be a councillor and get paid a pittance for all the work that you do. You've done that and I appreciate that. Thank you. Oh, you are very welcome and, and I get a real kick out of Effecting change, you know, for the better, for more, more of us. So thanks for that. Thank you. Let's go out to Dave Dobbin, Slice of Heaven. listening to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. Brought to you by the Sustainable Lens Team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. We broadcast on Otago Access Radio every weekday afternoon at 3 and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us on Facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We had a contribution today from Tahu McKenzie. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, with Mawira Karatai and Leslie Emink in Fakatani. We hope you enjoyed the show.
This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.